Hello everybody and welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tingster. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders and entrepreneurs in the hospitality industry to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind that both employees and customers love and support. In today's podcast, we're joined by industry maverick Carl Jones, the owner and managing director of Mushimo, the award-winning, sustainable and ethical Japanese restaurant in the heart of Brighton. We had a great time with having Carl on our podcast and we enjoyed discussing where he sees the industry going and much more. And the conversation was so great that we actually forgot all about time. So therefore, we have made a special two-episode session with Carl to ensure you get all the great nuggets. In the first episode, you will hear all about Carl's story, background in hospitality, what Mushimo is all about, sustainable sourcing, and all about their work with Fist Love. So get that coffee and tune in to a very special podcast. Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast, Carl Jones. Thank you, Michael. And uh, we have you here today because you are the MD of Mushimo here in Brighton, uh, a very well-known restaurant down here, and, uh, and, and, and we're going to hear a lot of great stuff today, I'm sure, about what you're up to and what you're doing. Let's so, hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so let's get started about, maybe you tell a bit about your background, your story, and how you ended up in Brighton and with a sushi restaurant. So my role was in um, acquisitions for restaurants with a much bigger company, and um, I was offered to join what was then the uh, the Moshi Group, which had three or four restaurants. I really liked working for the company, and I particularly liked the uh, the Moshi restaurant in Brighton. And I offered the owners uh, a price to buy it, and they said yes. And uh, it's all from there, really. So I didn't actually set the restaurant up originally. Um, I bought it and changed quite a lot. Uh, to do with it, along with my business partner. So, so your background is from more from corporate hospitality, or um, both. I've done the whole thing from start to finish. So, you know, started as a waiter, manager, ops manager, ops director, area manager, uh, the whole thing, and then um, finished basically in in acquisitions, which is pretty thankless, really. It's. Uh, a grand role of an estate agent with an eye on the high street and, and where you think you're going to be able to have great outlets for food. So uh, can you can name drop any of the, the companies you work for? <laughs> Is that a secret that people can find out themselves if they do a bit of research? Uh, no, I worked for, uh, I worked for Grand Met for a long time. I also worked, um, I was quite involved in harvesters and brewers fairs which had their place at the time. I don't know now so much. Um, I think there was a, a bit of a stigma attached in the in the late 90s with, uh, with I suppose, what would be seen as cheap family dining. Um, they got slightly out of hand, you know. There was one on every corner and they were led by voucher payments and, and that sort of that sort of scenario so basically they were a lot about driving footfall and not really about good food but you know I, I think they had their place they had their time so, so coming to Brighton and then deciding on buying your own restaurant and running that what was that that made you feel I want to go out on my own I suppose like everyone else who becomes an owner 
the first thing is you're thinking about is working for yourself and perhaps doing less hours, perhaps having a less hectic life. All of that goes out the window on the on the first day. Um, I think I was probably working somewhere in the 80-hour pluses per week. Um, I'm probably now only in the 70-hour pluses per week. But I think it is nice if you if you have some knowledge and you've digested some stuff about the industry, I think it is nice eventually working for yourself. And it's not about calling the shots or anything else, but it's just about putting all that, you know, hard work and experience that you have into something that you see the results from. Even if the results are not amazing, you, at least you're seeing your own results. And I think the good thing as well is that you can not so much develop your own food style but you can certainly develop what it is you want to sell not to give it any brand awareness but just what you think perhaps um, from either an ecological point of view or from a sustainable point of view if you're if you're selling a product that you believe in and you care about you take care of and you do all of your history and your legwork in sourcing it uh, I think that's very important and I I found that for me the the biggest bonus of all you know no no longer looking at corporate purchasing and, and no longer looking at the um, the bulk purchasing stratas that we all work on, so um, which was fantastic for me, and, and hiring the type of staff that I wanted to work with and not the type of staff a company would expect to work with, that was completely different, you know, taking time in recruitment, taking time in interviewing, um, all of that are the bonuses in, in owning your own business. The downside, of course, is that you're responsible for everything, so <laughs> it doesn't come without a negative. So, so why why the sushi restaurant? Is that because you had a special love for that cuisine, or absolutely nothing? No, absolutely nothing. I saw the potential. Um, I suppose because Brighton was a satellite restaurant to the rest of the group. Everything else was based in London. I could see the potential if you were an owner who ran it close at hand and took care of it close at hand. It wasn't in any way mismanaged, but it was a a restaurant that had a an outward look for for perhaps looking more at people who are aficionados of sushi and Japanese cuisine. That sort of thing for me in Brighton in the long run doesn't work. Um, I'm all about the populist and the and the popular eating. Um, and I could see with some tweaks and, and, and a different in uh, a different approach to the food, or I know giving people what they want to eat when it comes to Japanese food. I could see the potential for Brighton, and the owners didn't want to do anything like that with Brighton. So even when I was working for them, those suggestions were still on the table. And as I say, you know, they they snapped up the offer of selling it, and and pretty much, and I could change. Um, you know, we had very limited seating in the early days. There wasn't many tables. Um, and yet there was no structure in the booking system. There was no structure in the uh, the reservation network. And, and that led to some serious issues regarding the food and, and food preparation. And um, they were never quite sure what the reservation footfall would be like over a period of a week, let alone a period of a month. Um, we had a lot of things on the item, uh, a lot of items on the menu in the beginning that were not really things that everyone was looking for. Some of the weirder and more wonderful Japanese dishes, um, 
And if you're selling food that maybe only one in 40 of your customers really appreciate, um, you have to do something with the menu and you have to do something with the food. Not that it was bad food, it just didn't have um, the following for that type of cuisine. So it was, yeah, it was pretty easy to, you know, we went from having 30 people booked on a Saturday night to 125, 140, 150 and turning that over with walk-ins as well. So it made a big difference in, in what our offering was. And yet people who were loyal then are still loyal now. So, you know, they've come on that journey with us and they've seen um, they've seen what it is that we're trying to do. So There's one thing I want to talk about you said there um, before was that what works, you know, in general in the market you cannot copy to every town. You need to understand the, the town and the demographic and what these type of customers... And we all know that Brighton is a special place when it comes to they're very focused on supporting the independent and they may be quite forward also when they want to try on, on food and things like that. And was that the kind of things you went in to do? And Because often what I see sometimes is that people try to put things in a copy machine and do it across yeah. a market or a yeah. country or a region. And a menu maybe doesn't work in town, so and thereby because you don't want to change that and don't take on the the uh, the uh, the local needs from the customers, you actually going to fail, or they're not going to support you because they're not going to get the food they want. It's quite tr- strange trying to explain Moshi as a um, as a business model. We've always been about something quite different. First of all, we're a really expensive operation. We have three kitchens. And we prep everything in-house. So it it means basically that it's very labor-intensive, which means that the labor bill is very, very high. We have thought over the years about changing that, but it's it's impossible because if we still and always want to make our sushi by hand, you know, no machines, no robots, no gadgets, that means you've got to have people rolling, you've got to have people making, you've got to have people cutting fish, you know, they, they cut fish all day long. Then you have a hot kitchen, and the hot kitchen is preparing all the uh, the dishes that people you know crave: tempura and teriyaki and katsu and, and all of these things. And then behind that, you have a big preparation kitchen as well. And we could have changed what our offering was, and and piled everything down to having one kitchen. But we genuinely have always thought from the beginning, okay, we're giving people what they want to eat. And if we're successful at doing that, it's better to be more labor intensive. It's better to spend more money in labor than just try to cut a percentage payment. It, it would really affect what our offering is. And I think that's why the um, loyalty we've had with our Brighton customers has always been quite strong because we, We've never done much really to change our identity. They've always wanted an independent restaurant. They've always wanted a, a menu that we can be flexy with, that we can change dishes. You know, we, we have a lot of people who come in who want this more spicy or or this with more of a sauce. Or, you know, we, we don't have chefs who cook by numbers. We have chefs who cook by hand and feel and weight. I can't remember the last time I spoke saw a spec sheet in the kitchen we we just don't use them we have a really high retention level so we're not very often looking for chefs and when we do have a new chef he's taught 
um, on the line by whoever's been making that dish, you know, for for a period of time. So, which is fun because sometimes in the beginning, a new chef, it's a bit ropey, and suddenly the yakitori is a different size, or this has a stronger batter, or um, you know, they're heavy-handed with the pickle, and th- then they get into their flow, and it and it works. So, I think we've just always wanted to keep our identity as a a local restaurant with a good local following. We don't chase the tourists. Um, we're always chasing footfall. You know, everyone wants their restaurant to be busier. And we, we do little bits here and there to make sure that, you know, we, we maintain a presence and, and, and people are involved in the city. But we are always going to be looking for the people who come in once a week. You know, we get people who come in twice a week, three times a week, which is a really good shot at the demographic. If, you, if you've got a customer who's coming into your restaurant more than four times a month... I like to think that's a, a nod to us doing it well. And that has its flip side, because, you know, if we suddenly change anything, the the avalanche to change is <laughs> extraordinary, you know. And our customers spot it, you know. We we tried changing one of our soy sauce brands last year, and we, you know, we truthfully believed it was just as good a brand and just as famous, and, um, and we were slightly dubious. It was a bit darker and maybe a little bit saltier, but we were taste testing all the time and we you know we didn't and it had less sodium and we, we thought you know okay this this will be good and um you know in the first four days every customer said your soy sauce is different what's happening you know it's like so it, it's good having such a a local and and loyal base that they they notice even the soy sauce changing so you know, it works for us. That's uh, what you call very fast feedback, where you, yeah. where you have to yeah. acknowledge that. And did you did you go back to the old? Side uh, yeah, the eventually we did. You know, we we just talked to everyone the, the same as we do with anything we do at Moshi. We you know we have a really big membership and we have a lot of. And again, this goes back to the very beginning. You know, Moshimo didn't open on Mondays, never opened on Mondays. And it it had an idea of itself that it was part of that elite restaurant trading background where, you know, perhaps things weren't available on a Monday and so on. But things have moved on. You know, fishermen fish at weekends. Yeah. Fish move around the country at weekends. You can get what you need fresh on a Monday. You don't need to wait till the market's open on Tuesday it's it's now there it's now available and that's how we started our membership scheme um, really to see what could we do that was different with Mondays what would make people come out on a Monday what you know what sort of enticement was it and we started the Moshimo membership which you know is it's huge and, and, and locally it's it's pretty um, it's it's pretty famous and we managed to fill the restaurant every single Monday you know with queues outside and it's one of those things that's led by numbers you know if we're, if we're busy enough it's fine it covers costs and, and everything else you know if if, if we have a, a if we have hurricane weather and, and no one can come out for that night it's a little bit you know it becomes a bit ropey figures wise it was so popular in the first three years that we started looking at the queues and feeling okay it's slightly embarrassing we're going to have to close the membership you know we can't have people standing outside with brollies in the winter because you know they're waiting to get in and you know one of the waiters said well you know why don't we do Tuesdays too so we split the membership over the two days it works fantastic for the business because you know it means Mondays and Tuesdays have a, a really good footfall 
um, people who can't get out over the weekend because maybe they work in our industry, um, people who perhaps can only normally catch up because going to Moshi on a Monday, we see it's a it's a huge social event. It's not. Um, it's not people who are coming in because they've got a membership so they'll get a discount on the food. It's people coming in every Monday and sometimes Tuesday, dining with friends, different friends, um, different table collaborations. And we've, we've always seen that happening. And these are the people who perhaps couldn't catch up with friends on Friday and Saturday. They're not there for the social night out of getting drunk and, and you know finishing the night off dancing somewhere they're there just to have a meal and, and catch up with people so it, it's always worked really really well and you know we've had issues with the membership because it's it's really only has one rule you have to have the card you know we we have endless discussions about people who haven't got their card and don't know what they've done with their card and lost their card and you know so over the years it's been a big education process for everyone concerned um, and then the Tuesday worked as, a, as an overflow of that and the Tuesday almost has its own clientele again who uh, are doing that whole let's go and grab something to eat catch up and you know that sort of stuff so it works incredibly well and, and we, we're driven by the membership feedback so we are constantly asking and this is why we don't you know we do seasonal menus but we don't change the core dishes that often um, because the feedback is always I want this I want that I want this I want that and we keep we keep the top sellers on the menu all the time and it's what people want so I mean Monday maybe also could be the the hangover cure day you know maybe on the Monday when people are coming in who want chicken katsu and, and all of that sort of stuff it's to it's to recover you know maybe it's a maybe it's a recovery meal I don't know so the membership in a way you created your own little community how, how do you get that feedback because that must be so valuable that you have like you know people that come often on these days and give you feedback on the menu is that like a survey or is that what you pick up between the staff in the restaurant and then you feed it back through the team I think I think from the beginning when we started the membership we never charged for the membership card it was it was just a card you had to sign up to the card and that gave you a discount um, Fish Love came after the membership so then we were trying to fund Fish Love and we weren't sure how we were going to do it so charging for the membership card which originally eight years nine years ago was um I think originally it was £10 when we started. Nobody flinched. Everyone was happy with that. Um, it meant we could spend the income from the membership cards on promoting Fish Love and, and continue with Fish Love, which was fantastic because we were so passionate about what we were doing. And it was difficult getting support. Uh, we got attacked quite a lot because people didn't understand what it was we were doing. You know, people... And even today, you know, people think that we're saying don't fish. And it's got nothing to do with fish, it's to do with overfishing. I think after the Tuesdays too, we increased um, the cost of the membership. But we made sure that everybody understood that the membership was theirs. They control it by having the card. They control it by turning up. And they control it by feeding back to us what they want to see on the menu how they you know we've changed 
the look of our menus three times in about nine years or more. Not the content, but the look. Um, we used to have a little card that had too many pages. We had a big card that everyone thought was too big, but you know we were trying to make it easy to read. You know we've condensed it down to uh, I think about seven or eight pages of, of A5, and in there we you know we we talk about the membership and we talk about how important it is to have feedback. So what we do is we take a slice of our membership demographic probably every quarter. We email direct. You know not a not an email cascade but we email direct and ask specific questions you know do you enjoy this dish do you enjoy that dish do you come in for a particular dish and uh, would you like to see you know we just chopped our wine menu in half we we regularly had a wine menu that really was just too big for no because we're not drink led we're we're very much food and healthy eating led so whereas there's always the call for a bottle of wine there wasn't really a call for 10 offerings on the red and six on the rosé and 15 on the white so we just cut it down really really small and, and that was all from customer feedback you know customers were saying that we'd be happy just always drinking your house wine because it's good we're not bothered if there's another option or not so so that was very very good really really good um there are some things that we're ashamed of dare i say it we're the kind of people who wouldn't like to sell something like the coca-cola brand but the call for it is huge and you know again that was something we put out to our customers and said could you live without coke and basically our customers said no so we make our we make our own lemonade in-house now um all of that is done we've tried to remove all the soft drinks and all the sugary soft drinks and but again all membership led it was you know feedback to us what you want and, and how you'd like to see it and and in most instances it it works well for the restaurant well for the business and great for the customer so so yeah we are we are driven by our customers what they want what they're looking for and it, it works well taking over the restaurant i guess back in 2008 seven seven yeah. and then moving into the recession yeah. i guess at some point and then still be here there must be you know there must be many things you got right on that journey because that We are in a similar situation right now. We come back to it in, in a moment. But what is it that you think is the like the top three things that you get right? Because you don't make a lot of changes when it comes to the customer facing, as I can understand. You listen a lot to the customers, but don't make many changes. Only the changes they shout about. Yeah. Um, what is it that you internally get right to con- continue almost being a bit like recession proof, if you can say that? I think again it's this there is a different situation when you're corporate the savings that have to be made when you're corporate are enormous i mean they are absolutely enormous i come from that corporate restaurant world where you know you you'd see a you'd see a pizza chain that would go down to one manager and one waiter and one chef per shift regardless of how busy those outlets are you know they they could have 200 diners in that night they could have 30 diners in that night but the only way that they can see as controlling the bottom line is to cut uh, staff workforce or to reduce the product level and i think partly maybe through some laziness of my own but i think we were quite adamant 
um, during that recession that we weren't going to suddenly start firing everyone. You know, year on year we've hired more staff and our workforce has, has gone up. You know, a small restaurant with 36 full-time staff, uh, it's quite a lot and our, and our wage bill is huge. So we, we've tried not to let things be affected by the workforce uh, which rankles because you know if you if you have a really busy night and and you might you know like everywhere like any office you know if you've got one person with flu you'll end up with four people off with flu and you know that always brings me to my my favorite subjects of of reviews you know so you have that busy night with three people off with flu and um, and you get attacked because people have waited 10 minutes for a drink and you think yeah, you're not you're not quite getting what we're doing here. You know, this has happened to you once, but you you could go into any restaurant in the high street and wait forty five minutes for your drink every time and fifty five minutes for your food every time because there's no work for us to do it with. So I think that was a big a big decision that we made that we wouldn't try to save money on the bottom line by having less staff. Probably our second compromise was that we wouldn't. We'd never go looking for the cheap food. We didn't do it then and we don't do it now. Some things got out of hand during the recession and, and, you know, people in the industry see it and they know what's going on. You know, a huge chain of of Asian-style cuisine, you know, throughout the recession, they stopped selling katsu prawns. They just took it off the menu because the price went up so high they couldn't fix the volume price that they wanted, so they just removed it from the menu. Um, luckily, uh, thankfully, we we never got into that arena. We um, we reduced how much we were spending on tuna by just not having it available all the time. You know, it was it was outpricing itself as something you could sell. And we we've always been aware of our selling cost. You know, there's only so much we can charge for some sashimi or some sushi. So we were we were very, very careful about what we were paying for our product. And we, we just made sure, as always, what, perhaps stricter, we made sure we had no wastage and, and so on. And then uh, probably thirdly, we just managed, um, you know, this expression, cutting your cloth to suit. Uh, that's what we did. We just stopped the spend. If we were running out of water jugs, rather than go and buy the really expensive water jugs we were using, we we nipped off somewhere and bought some really cheaper versions. Um, we stopped using really expensive napkins. You know, my my pet uh, issue is napkins and, and non-consumables. People, and and that's natural again to to our industry. You know, if you if you're working for a big corporation. Whoever orders non-consumables in the store, they're given a budget that they they have to hit because, you know, the bottom line knows that you're going to overspend on non-consumables. And and that's different with a small independent because, you know, people just see boxes of napkins arriving. They have no idea of how much the napkin costs. Um, And when they scoop uh, napkins off of a table and think, oh, I'm not going to bother with that clean one that wasn't used by anyone I'll just bin that one as well you know it's it's a lot of money so um, we changed things like that we we used a cheaper version of a, of a napkin through the recession and when things got better we actually went over I, I personally prefer 
having linen napkins for our customers. And in that true Moshimo style, our customers didn't notice. So it was um, it was obviously personal to me. You know, they 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 truly were not bothered whether they had a linen napkin or a or a paper napkin. And and that search is is a thing we do all the time. I'm constantly looking for good quality yeah. um, paper napkin that can be easily recycled and you know and, and, and doesn't come at some huge price. Um, but you know, as you know, that's all those holy grails are, are constantly there. It's, it's all you do all the time. So I think overall we just simply took care of what we were spending in-house, um, took care of what the staff were looking for, uh, what they wanted. You know, you can have someone who's working 45 hours who actually only wants to work 35 and has not told anyone. And you think, okay, so you know, there's a saving in hours there because we're filling up the rotor because our anticipation or our belief is this is what so you know you go back to writing rotors correctly it just means people you don't have any wasted hours you know you can tag hours in you can use i can't bear those rotor writing algorithm things but you know a common sense rotor stops you overspending because if anyone can sneak off for a fag and a chat on their mobile then the rotor's heavy <laughs> you don't need them there so you know you you have to approach those sort of obvious savings. Still being around, being very successful, you've also been out on other adventures. You've been, you mentioned a fish love before. So for people on listening in, can you just explain in, in, in a short version of what is fish love and okay. what is the mission and uh, who is involved and where you're going? So fish love is a campaign uh, to stop overfishing. Um, from the very beginning, we've had massive support from the EU Parliament. We've had support from the UN, the Canadians, the Americans, Norway, you name it. We approached initially Greta Skaki, who is a, um, you know, an Oscar-winning actress and also a friend of my business partner. Um, we asked her, would she prepare to you know, take off her clothes and, and pose naked? Um, there was a campaign just starting at that point, and... Um, we said, you know, we can get this in the Guardian. We really need people to start thinking about overfishing. And all of this stems back to, you know, the bluefin tuna that was... I mean, and now it's, it's just been massacred. At, at one point, it's... I think we've... It's already once been likened to the right, the uh, the white rhino. It's, it's just absolutely um, been decimated. Anyway, she, uh, she agreed and... Um, she whipped off her clothes and, and um, it was picked up throughout the world. You know, it was New York Times front page. It was absolutely everywhere. I mean, you know, Greta has said often she received more publicity and more headline from that one shot than winning her Oscar than, you know, anything else that had happened in her life. It was just extraordinary. And to be honest with you, we weren't going to continue with a campaign, you know, that was it. We were telling people and there was a book and a film that came out at the time called End of the Line, which um, Charles Clover was behind. And and Charles wanted some sort of launch for this film. And he, you know, he needed some headlines, even though he was a writer himself. And um, we got together an entire group of people, Vivian Westwood, you know, to, everyone was involved in the launch of the film. And and then people started saying, well, you know, I'm prepared also to 
to take this picture and more and more everyone from Mariella Frostrup to Jerry Hall to, you know, everyone suddenly, the editor of the Sunday Times, um, Eleanor Mills, you know, there's a, a very famous shot of her. So everyone was keen to be involved on the right level. They were high enough profile enough for them to want to be involved, not for self-promotion. They wanted to be involved. So we did the first series uh, with Rankin, which was a phenomenon. And again, it got worldwide press. And, and, you know, subsequently with incredibly famous John Swinnell and Alan Gelati and Gillian Endelstein, we've used all these really famous photographers who've given up their time for free. And and anyone we've approached, um, you know, everyone from Ian McKellen, Michael Gambon, you know, everybody has been involved and, and... and thoroughly being supportive. What is hard is to get over the message. And it's really, really difficult. Um, if you, if you, for example, if you're invited into the European Parliament and they use the main chamber of the Parliament, which they've never used for anything like this before, and literally put... Um, every fish love photograph up on the walls and they insisted that every MEP and at that time Maria Damanaki was the fisheries minister and she was really going for it and everyone got the message and everyone was really behind it and everyone started cascading it but you move from that to now and you still have to explain to people that this isn't a sushi restaurant telling people don't eat fish it's just telling people that there is a huge risk to our oceans. There is a huge risk at what's coming within the next, you know, we, we were originally talking about 50 years. Now we're talking about in the next 15 to 20 years. You know, these huge companies have moved on from Europe. They're now raping their way through the, the South China Seas, the Pacific and everywhere else. You know, they're, they're out there catching whatever they can in these quantities that you know i love it when we um when we teach these classes with children and we explain to them that you know imagine uh, a net that is so big that you can put jumbo jets inside that net that's the size of these nets and that's the hard thing is making people understand that okay don't take the image on this face value as a naked person holding a fish look behind what's happening and that is our biggest that is our biggest fight it's making people understand that this campaign is an environmental campaign it's not about you know we're we're not telling everyone who'll go to this supermarket or go to that supermarket or buy your fish this way or buy your fish that way but just to be aware and you know sign petitions and and try and change things, but it's yeah, it's it's been recognised as the biggest influence um, in the world on on this subject. So and that's incredible for a, a Brighton restaurant that's tucked in the lanes in Brighton, whilst operating on a normal, you know, with all the things that come with it. You know, someone forgot to order onions, we've run out of ice, and and someone's turned up or, or phoned up sick. You know. It's, we're not demented in that approach to to what we do. I think that's why we managed to balance it out and 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 get things done. You know, my business partner concentrates a lot on fish love, and and I concentrate a lot on the business. So it, it balances itself out. 
So, so where, where do you think fish love is in, in five years' time? This is a very important course, and we all know that it's very important to eat you know, local fish. We keep saying, it's the last year, we're not doing it again. Um, and then, you know, particularly this year, the, uh, the Danish politicians came to see us and, and said, look, you know, we really want to do something. We, we'd love a Danish series. And at the same time, the Germans... Um, they were talking about the same thing. So, you know, currently, literally, yesterday and today, um, the images are on these incredible uh, moving billboards, which, you know, they were all over Denmark yesterday, being rolled around, and an incredible response from, you know, the, the Danes, just absolutely incredible. And the thing, same thing happens next week with Berlin. Luckily for us, we, we don't have to do anything with that side of the operation. You know, we create the images, we find the people... Um, who want to take part, you know, Sean Penn in Malibu has just done it and Paris Jackson and Josh Brolin and, you know, really high, high profile celebrities, I suppose, you know, seriously involved. Um, we do all of that. And then, for example, uh, with the Danish, Our Fish, which is an incredible organisation, um, they're the ones who are spearheading the campaign there, so they're using the images for that. I think if we can keep that type of relationship where we're producing, we're doing, we're finding, we're promoting, without having to do that, those huge bodies of you know work across Europe, then it's it's fine for us. We can continue with it. But the worry for us is if if governments and politicians and MEPs and and MPs don't get behind what's happening, it will have all been for a waste of time. It really will have been, because the the situation on fishing quotas and overfishing is probably at its worst now, and it's it's going to get worse. Um, so, yeah, as I say, you know, we've, we've probably got less than five, five or eight years to really, you know, to really nail this. 2020 is supposed to be the tipping point, and everything's supposed to change so so i think we'll keep going for as long as for as long as we can be involved really but it costs money and it's it all comes out of moshima so you know, unless you know sometimes we do have um, people who want to sponsor and that's fantastic but the rest of the time we foot the bill yeah and i guess if there's anybody out there listening to the podcast they're welcome to reach out to absolutely you. oh my goodness want to be involved in, absolutely in any kind of way. absolutely we have no preciousness about fish love you know when when a series has been done exclusively by us it's been everywhere it's been in museums it's been in galleries it's you know we we have no preciousness. as long as it's used for the cause then absolutely fine you know we, we have to be uh, a, a funny anecdote is in Kiev um, somebody sent us a photograph saying oh look at your uh, fish love pictures and uh, you know the son a famous singer and the son of a famous French singer Thomas Toutron, um he was split screened on the doors to this supermarket and then every single person who'd been in that particular series which was um, actually was the um, the French photographer we were working with. Every single picture that Denis Rouve had taken had been put around every single window of this huge supermarket in the middle of Kiev. But they it was not like they were poster sized. They'd somehow been digitally enhanced, I think by eight by seventeen meters. 
I mean, they were just ginormous. And they just thought they'd lift them and use them, you know, for, for nothing other than they thought they were nice pictures. And we'll stick them, you know, all around this supermarket. And in the end, through a lot of um, skullduggery and, and, and contacting, we managed to get the, uh, the mayor of Kiev to request this supermarket take them down because um, they could have put them up with a fish love logo and all the information about fish love as well and we wouldn't have cared but it's the fact that they just went ahead and thought we'll plaster our building in these in these images so yeah we're not we're not we're not precious about it. we'll keep working with people who you know who want to be involved and, and who really support what's what's happening so more important than ever that you use this you know restaurant you have as a, a megaphone for change and impact as well and I guess if you can help educate people which is a lot about I can hear uh, we can slightly change the world with our food dollars as I call it we've got all of that in our menu I mean it's in our menu it's on our websites it's everywhere we do, we do you know we are strange people in the city who know us say oh my god you guys are everywhere And we are, but for different reasons. We don't spend money on marketing or big ad campaigns or anything else. But we do a lot within the city that takes us through the city. We do, uh, every year we have three schools that we uh, do uh, environmental classes with, year one, year two, year three, year four. And we'll see each school all the way through. So let's say through two terms and Tuesdays and Fridays, we have school children in in the morning and they do all sorts of things. They learn how to make sushi. They learn about how we source our fish and the origins of our fish and why it's important to ask those questions. And we do stuff at the universities. We do stuff with various local um, campaign groups who want to be involved in sustainable food. We've always been about restorative eating and sustainable food. That message is always going to be there our customers get that it's difficult for a lot of people uh, especially the award when we got an award from PETA um, people were like this is mind-boggling they, they sell fish they sell meat they sell lamb they sell chicken you know how is it possible they got an award from PETA and it's what people don't see in the background of the forward-facing restaurant is how much work we're doing on restorative, restorative eating and restorative foods, how much work we're doing to educate and to train um, local farmers. We don't, we don't stay loyal, particularly um, with anyone. We move seasonally and so on, and depending what we can get. But we've, we've worked in educating local farmers and local fishermen and people around the, uh, the English coastline. We've worked with an awful lot of fishermen. So I think... Doing all of that keeps our message going without it being, you know, we're never going to be militant. We launched a, a, a Vegan Wednesday offer because we've always had a lot of vegan food on our menu. You know, I come from a household of vegans. I'm the only one who eats fish. That conscious effort to have some vegan choices... You know, we stepped it up, we stepped it up, we took some stuff out, we reduced the meat, we reduced the fish, we added more vegetable dishes or made vegetable choice more available on some of the dishes. And it's really worked. You know, people really like it, people appreciate it. It means you don't have that whole split family dining. You know, you've got six people now around the table, gluten-free, vegan, vegetarian, people who are pescatarians, you know, there's the thing there for everyone. 
and it also it, that just works in balancing out our menu you know it's it just it's a it's a no brain situation with that it's like we can just do that it's it's easy to do and I think we'll keep going in that direction I think we're always going to be heading to fish just being so expensive that we can't sell it that's our fear but we believe that's where we will end up and you know hey we've we've got a conveyor belt that goes around our restaurant we can put anything on it no one's saying it has to be fish um, you know we can do that we can do a minimum offering and, and, and we'll see where we end up but if fish starts to be too expensive to sell or beyond reason then I think we, we probably will go completely veggie vegan I think eventually I think that's always going to I think that's always going to happen because we can't see any end in sight for this you know that's all we have time for today. Thank you, Carl, for sharing Moshimo's story and your thoughts regarding today's hospitality sectors and the challenge you, amongst many other operators, are facing. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please give us a like, share, or even better, tell us what you think. Does your business have a plan for becoming more sustainable? Tune in in two weeks' time to listen to more nuggets from Carl Jones. In the meantime, thank you for listening and be maverick.